0: Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay? H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader,
1: pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now
0: is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection.
1: Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag.
0: And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice.
1: And now on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis and I'm Sunny Days. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. So Sonny, my daughter recently started dating this girl or young woman, I should say, and she lives in what I now understand is a low status community. And our wonderful guest, Majora Carter is going to get into this in a moment. But we had, I just want to say this quickly, because we don't have a lot of time. So there was a huge snowstorm and we went and, you know, she lives in the next town over and our town, you know, there's a little snow here and there, but her town was, it was a mess. And I immediately got upset that this is ridiculous. This is a town that's mostly Dominican, Puerto Rican, Hispanic uh, immigrants and I was just so annoyed. I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm thinking, does the town not have money or do the people feel like they don't deserve it? Or are they just, do they want to get out? And all this stuff went, Oh my God. And then I read Majora Carter's book. I was like, Oh my God. It's like everything. Majora Carter is a real estate developer, urban revitalization strategy consultant. MacArthur Fellow and Peabody Award-winning broadcaster. She is responsible for the creation and successful implementation of numerous economic developments, technology and green infrastructure projects, policies, and job training and placement systems. Majora applies her corporate consulting practice focused on talent retention to reducing brain drain in America's low-status communities, She has firsthand experience pioneering sustainable economic development in one of America's most storied low-status communities, the South Bronx. Majora is quoted on the walls of the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., quote, nobody should have to move out of their neighborhood to live a better one, unquote. She has served on the boards of the U.S. Green Building Council, CERES, the Wilderness Society, and the Andrew Goldman Foundation. Majora has helped connect tech industry pioneers such as Etsy, Gust, The Fresh Direct, Google, and Cisco to diverse communities at all levels. Majora, welcome. We're so excited. You are the author of the wonderful book, Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. So excited to have you on Active Allyship. Thank it's more you. than hashtag. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yes, welcome. So our first question, and this is a question that we ask every guest, what were you marinated in? What was... <laughs> <laughs> so no, it's okay. <laughs> so the 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 essence mm. of the question is, how did you become who you are today? Like from your youth, and so the way we phrase that question is, what were you marinated in? Mm.
2: I was marinated in a sense of combined guilt and shame. Mm. Mm. Wow. And, you know, when I was pulled up from it, you know, by the grace of God um, and amazing people that were put in my life, it was just like, what? No. Like, that was literally just white supremacy, like, pounding in on everything, every cell in my body. And now that's
0: not what it is anymore. Okay, wonderful. Well, man, I would love to dive deeper into that, but we're going to focus on the book because we'd love to have you back so that we can dig deeper into that conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had brought up the low status. If you can define that, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, low status. We, we use the term
2: low status as opposed to under resourced or. Poverty-stricken and all those kind of names, um, because it essentially refers, you know, not to the fact that, that there's something wrong with the people there, but that inequality is simply assumed by both people outside and inside the community. That is the way they look at it. There's always generally something, something a little wrong, like you know about that other side of the tracks, mm, nah. and, <laughs> and that's the way it goes. And it's also the kind of places that people feel. As though they need, if you're born and raised in a place like that, you measure success by how far you get away from them.
1: Yeah, you know, I just wanted to mention, too, like, I was having my daughter at Lawrence General, and people would ask when I was proud, where are you having your daughter? I was like, at Lawrence or your baby at Lawrence General, and they're like, oh, you're not going into Boston? I'm like, no, I'm not flipping going into Boston. Lawrence General is 10 minutes away. It's a great hospital, Mm. and there are people sleeping all over the place. I'm like, what are you doing? But that's the assumption. Yeah, there's, like, no value
2: in our communities and those kind of type of communities, and, like, I'm from the South Bronx, you know, birthplace and hip-hop, we had all sorts of amazing cultural attributes, amazing people, Um, you know, but... Again, we are totally led to believe that, like somehow or another, because we're in places like this, and I do think that this is a, like a legacy of white supremacy, that our communities have no real value while we're in them, and uh, that's how I
0: think of so many of us kind of look at our neighborhoods. I mean, this ties directly to redlining. Mm-hmm. You know, this is you know, unfortunately, uh, this is a problem that has was created. A gazillion years ago, and it now, so we're trying to figure out how do we move past this? How do we, with the resources that are available to us, um, whether that's monetary or knowledge, Amen. move forward in these communities that were already predestined, if you will, to be less than?
2: Mm. Yes. Preach it. Like that is exactly it because we are under resourced and it's, it's, and we do have to be really dedicated and, um, you know, and, and literally know, know how to make, try to figure out how to make a dollar out of 15 cent, you know, those kind of things that we got to do. Um, but the, what, the way that we're looking at it is that, you know, within our own communities, there are always the ones that, you know, essentially, I do believe that the nonprofit industrial complex has, you know, sort of worked to create, first of all, sort of poverty as a cultural attribute. So if you stay in a community, a low-status community, then you're kind of stuck there because it's almost as if, you know, just look at the billions of philanthropic and, and government dollars that go into those communities, and it's sort of like to maintain poverty, the status of poverty. It's not to make people less poor because there's also the extractive part, you know, it's like if you're a bright, talented kid, artistically, academically or whatever, you know, there are often programs to get you out of those neighborhoods and you're, and you're never meant to go back in. But what you mm-hmm. retain those people and literally give them reasons to want to stay and invest? Not just financially, which is always cool, but also the emotional Part of that is huge when you start looking back at your community and giving it a second glance and being like, wait a second, why am I running and taking my, my, my beautiful fruits and knowledge and everything else and putting it in another neighborhood? Why can I not do it here? Like Seriously, why can't my example you know, of what talent and, and grace and beauty looks like be given out here? And why can I not expect the same to be, to be inspired by other folks as well? Um, in right. our community, and so what we did is is really think about what and no, we didn't think about it. We asked people in our community why, what, what's what, what are your hopes and dreams and aspirations for the kind of communities that you want to be in. And they told us, they were like, we like going out. We like seeing, you know, um, you know, cool places, you know, whether they're cafes or restaurants or bookstores or just like having nice apartments, you know, in our own community um, that we can afford. um, That's because that's not like, you know, only meant for very low income people because we can't because we make too much money for that. But, you know, we wouldn't mind being in our own neighborhood, but there's no place. No one's building that kind of stuff for us. And I was just like, "Hmm, I guess that's what we need to do because we need this economic diversity. I mean, that's more,
1: we need all of these things in our own community. So if we now start building them, it's going to be crazy. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering when the shift first came for you, because in your book, you write at the age of seven years and 10 months, I was determined to grow up and get out. I started planning my escape from the Bronx. So when did this shift happen for you? The
2: shift to like, I'm a stay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That didn't happen until um, I actually had to come back to the community, not because I wanted to, but because I needed a cheap place to stay while I was going to graduate school, which was my old bedroom at mommy and daddy's house. And it was so, you know, that's when I saw that the city and state were planning on building a huge waste facility on our waterfront, even though we had, we already handled an enormous amount of New York City's waste. And it was just like, Dag, really? And, you know, and, but it was, it was wonderful because that education that I had like, spent a long time getting and the distance that I had and seeing other places just made me look a little more closely at what was happening. It was like, this is only happening because we're poor and of color. And I was like, no, 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 um, no. And, you know, and the, but, the, but what I know is the sad thing is that no one would have blamed me if I just like kept moving in the other direction out. But I couldn't do it. I was just like, no, I think I'm. This is, there's like too many amazing things in my neighborhood that I can, that I now see and that I want to help support. Yeah,
0: I was just about to say, I think what happens is we don't see the richness Mm. of the neighborhood. Right. We don't see the richness of the talent Mm. in the neighborhood because it's like, oh, there's a bright shining light let us pluck it out yes. Yes. as you said mm-hmm. and take it so that that bright shining light can shine in another area and so we remove all the light and then you know th- what's left right so i i think i'm um, staying and investing reinvesting is I mean, is amazing. And as I'm looking at the book, the introduction, there goes the neighborhood. (laughs) And so I feel like in this book, it's a play on words, right? Because we're talking about gentrification, Mm -hmm. right? But I can remember clearly when people of color, um, the minority segment of the population would move into white neighborhoods. That was there goes the neighborhood, exactly. and then white flight. Mm-hmm. So, can you speak to that? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, exactly. So, what we're what we're
2: experiencing now, um, you know, because of yeah, it was definitely like white folks were like white flight was that's what happened. You know, we like people would think they would make it a little bit, well, co- people of color anyway, and then they'd move into these neighborhoods that were better than the the econ- more economically diverse, although racially segregated ones that they were in, and move into a white one. Um, because that's what you did. I think that's also like white supremacy. It's like, <clears throat> you don't want to, if you're doing better, you don't want to stay around those. Right. And that's just like internalized racism that we continue to put out there. So they would move there. And then of course, the more people of color that would go, more white folks would move out. What we're seeing now is the reurbanization of America and people, you know, people of means or wanting to go back into cities, those same places that they left because, you know, cl- more transit rich, you know, easier access to all sorts of things. And now it's like, we're being filled feel like, up feeling like we're being pushed out again. Um, but what the crazy, crazy thing is, is like, we're being pushed out for the same reasons why the white people left in the first place. Right. Right. Crazy. exact same thing. And we're buying it again. I'll give you an example. The, the home ownership rate right here in the Southwest, my dad bought the house I grew up in, in the 1940s. Um, so three generations of my family for, in this community. And, uh, and of course it was all white and then slowly all people of color, almost a hundred percent now. And, and it was so crazy because now it was a home ownership rate, like just less, less than 20 years ago, there was more than 20 some percent, right? And now it's um, less than seven because predatory speculators are looking at this community and recognizing that, oh, wait, like this re trend, people are going to want to come here, even though right now it's not like, you know, perfect and pristine, but if we can hold on to these properties... If we can get these properties out of the hands of these people that don't really understand what they got, then we're getting ready for the next, you know, the
0: best uptick in real estate development. Jorah, let me say that is my old neighborhood. Yeah. My sister still lives there. I, I call it, uh, it's Petworth mm-hmm. in D.C. Uh-huh. I say the newly discovered Petworth. Oh. And it's, it wasn't a low status neighborhood. I mean, we were like middle-class families, right? But so many white folks have moved into the neighborhood. And I was telling my sister, she didn't even realize it. There's a flipping cannabis store to, within walking distance. And she was like, no, no. I said, no, I drove past it. There's a cannabis store where the convenience store used to be. Wow. I mean, it's just, Listen. My friends who used to hang out on the corner got locked up for selling nickel and dime bags. Oh, and now you have a whole legit cannabis and store, it's not owned, white by owned, the na- white owned. It's not by by the name it. It, it's, it's um well there's some there's some uh, decision making. Whiteness in there, which is the only reason that it would be allowed to be there. But let me not. You got to come back.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you got to come back. We got like two more minutes with you. And there's so much more to get into. I mean, you're just phenomenal. You know, I was thinking too about my daughter's girlfriend and that, you know, she's gifted. So within the regular high school in her city, she's in this gifted program in the library. Uh, in the in the school but then so again it puts that track of like well you you're gifted so you're gonna get out right but then why don't they put the resources into the rest of the high school it's just so frustrating and
2: even just you know make sure that the neighborhood itself yes there's that and also the neighborhood it's something that everybody wants to stay in right so that you know quite frankly you know it's true if what we if we won't if we don't see it, we don't know it, especially in communities like ours. So the more we take out, you know, the, the access for people to see folks that look like them and who are from where they are and to see like the whole range of what you could be, then we lose that. We, we literally lose, they, we lose, you know, their, their ability to um, inspire other folks and to be inspired by others, to, to mentor, to, you know, to, to
1: invest in. I mean, it's just gone and we don't, Realize that until it's too late. That's true. Oh my gosh, I'm so sad. We have to let you go, Majora. Tell us all the ways we can find you, and then let us know how we can get you back. Definitely buy my book. It's
2: available on all any place you buy your book. But of course, I'm going to ask you to support your local bookstore. <laughs> um, go through bookshop dot org, and then they'll direct you to your local. Bookstore, oh, cool, um, which is awesome. And um, then also at, at Majora Carter um, on Instagram. And also Twitter and at Boogie Down Grind is another one. Um, that's the, the cafe that we, which is literally like one of the main parts of our um, talent retention strategy, um, because it really created the kind of a vessel, essentially, that community was able to, to, to sit in and see themselves reflected, you know, back in in a beautiful way. And that's what was keeping people around.
1: That's great. And by the way, I I still want to ask about your dance skater husband, Sonny. I figured that would... Sonny loves to skate. I loved to skate when I was a kid, so we got to get into into that. Oh, absolutely. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.